Audio 112, another sermon by George Whitfield, the greatest evangelist in American history, who preached from 1740 to 1770. Over 18,000 sermons from Maine to Georgia, mostly in the fields where he was barred from many of the churches. Benjamin Franklin, who himself was not a Christian, printed the sermons for George Whitfield. And one time, George Whitfield came into Philadelphia, and Benjamin Franklin retired backwards until he could not hear George Whitfield any longer, computed the area of a semicircle, two square feet per person, and figured up to 30,000 people were in attendance to that particular sermon. His face was almost as well known as George Washington's face. When he arrived in America in 1740, most of our founding fathers like George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson were less than 10 years old. And thus our founding fathers grew up under the preaching of George Whitfield. And George Whitfield preached God's free grace, not man's free will. Many of us Americans have probably heard of the Methodist churches, but we may not have heard that it was John Wesley who was the founder of the Methodist churches. George Whitfield and John Wesley were very good friends in their younger years in England. But as years went on, John Wesley went off the doctrinal tracks of the bodies of the will and became a free will preacher. And thus, George Whitfield begrudgingly had to separate himself by writing a letter to his friend condemning the doctrine of free will. Here is an excerpt from that particular letter. Dear Sir, This is George Whitfield writing to his good friend, John Wesley. Dear Sir, that is John Wesley, for Jesus Christ's sake, consider how you dishonor God by denying election. That is, Jesus chooses us, we don't choose him. It's just like our natural birth. Dear John Wesley, for Jesus Christ's sake, consider how you dishonor God by denying election. You plainly make salvation depend not on God's free grace, but on man's free will. And if thus it is more than probable, Jesus Christ would not have had the satisfaction of seeing the fruit of his death in the eternal salvation of one soul. Why? For we are so depraved, we will never choose the true Jesus, but a fake Jesus. And therefore, not one soul would go to heaven. And thus, as we listen to this message of George Whitfield entitled, The Putting On of the New Man, we will hear George Whitfield say that the new man or the new creation is created. Now, anything that is created by God, it is not in cooperation with us. God creates completely on his own with no fingerprints of our own upon 
that creation of the new man or the new creation. It is just like our natural birth. We have absolutely no control over our natural birth, nor does any animal. We have no control over the day, time, or place that God will make us that new creation. And thus, what do we do? But paradoxically, do what Jesus commands us to do. Dr. Luke, chapter 13, verse 24, agonize to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I, Jesus, say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. This is foreign to our fast food free will preachers. So now let us listen to one of the greatest bondages of the will theologians of all time, St. Augustine, who in his own confessions explains to us Americans how long and hard he struggled with sin before God made him a new creation. Jesus tells us Americans, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Let us now commence with some excerpts of the confessions of St. Augustine. Book 2, chapter 1, paragraph 1. I, St. Augustine, wish now to review in memory my past wickedness and the carnal corruptions of my soul, not because I still love them, but that I may love thee, O my God. For love of thy love I do this, recalling in the bitterness of self-examination my wicked ways that thou mayest grow sweet to me thou sweetness without deception thou sweetness happy and assured thus thou mayest gather me up out of those fragments in which i was torn to pieces while i turned away from thee O oh, unity and lost myself among the many. For as I became a youth, I longed to be satisfied with worldly things, and I dared to grow wild in a succession of various and shadowy loves. My form wasted away, and I became corrupt in thy eyes, yet I was still pleasing to my own eyes, and eager to please the eyes of men. Chapter 2, paragraph 2. But what was it that delighted me, save to love and to be loved? Still I did not keep the moderate way of the love of mind to mind, the bright path of friendship. Instead, the mists of passion steamed up out of the pudly concupiscence, that is the evil proclivities of his heart, the pudly concupiscence of the flesh and the hot imagination of puberty. And they so obscured and overcast my heart that I was unable to distinguish pure affection from unholy desire both boiled confusedly within me and dragged my unstable youth down over the cliffs of unchaste desires and plunged me into a gulf of infamy. The anger had come upon me, and I knew it not. I had been deafened by the clanking of the chains of my mortality, the punishment for my soul's 
pride. And I wandered farther from thee, and thou didst permit me to do so. I was tossed to and fro and wasted and poured out, and I boiled over in my fornications. And yet thou didst hold thy peace. Oh, my tardy joy, thou didst still hold thy peace, and I wandered still farther from thee into more and yet more barren fields of sorrow and restless lassitude. As we mentioned in the last message, God gave St. Augustine over to the evil proclivity of fornication. Now we're going to stop there with that particular excerpt of which St. Augustine was speaking of himself at the age of 16 to 15 years later when he was at the age of 31, still wrestling with sin, but about to be converted. Book 8, chapter 11, paragraph 25. Thus I, St. Augustine, was sick and tormented, reproaching myself more bitterly than ever, rolling and writhing in my chain till it should be utterly broken. By now I was held but slightly, but still was held. And thou, O Lord, didst press upon me in my inmost heart with a severe mercy, redoubling the lashes of fear and shame, lest I should again give way, and that same slender remaining tie not be broken off, but recover strength and enchain me yet more securely. I kept saying to myself, see, let it be done now. Let it be done now. And as I said this, I all but came to a firm decision. I all but did it, yet I did not quite. Still, I did not fall back to my old condition, but stood aside for a moment and drew breath. And I tried again and lacked only a very little of reaching the resolve. And then somewhat less, and then all but touched and grasped it. St. Augustine is desiring now to be made a new creation, but it is something that God has to do. He can't do it. And there is a spiritual death that has to occur before we can have a spiritual resurrection and become a new creation. And that death occurs when we see our heart as God does, when he circumcises our heart, and we are then willing to condemn ourselves to hell. It is at that point that we will have then the spiritual resurrection and become a new creation. Now, back to St. Augustine. Yet I still did not quite reach or touch or grasp the goal because I hesitated to die to death and to live to life. And the worst way to which I was habituated was stronger in me than the better, which I had not tried. And up to the very moment in which I was to become another man, 
the nearer the moment approached, the greater horror did it strike in me. But it did not strike me back nor turn me aside, but held me in suspense. Paragraph 26. It was, in fact, my old mistresses. As mentioned earlier, he was into the sin of fornication and he had mistresses. It was, in fact, my old mistresses, trifles of trifles and vanities of vanities who still enthralled me. They tugged at my fleshly garments and softly whispered, Are you going to part with us? And from that moment, will we never be with you anymore? And from that moment, will not this and that be forbidden you forever? What were they suggesting to me in those words, this or that? What is it they suggested? Oh my God, let thy mercy guard the soul of thy servant from the vileness and the shame they did suggest. And now I scarcely heard them, for they were not openly showing themselves and opposing me face to face, but muttering, as it were, behind my back, and furtively plucking at me as I was leaving, trying to make me look back at them. Still they delayed me so that I hesitated to break loose and shake myself free of them and leap over to the place to which I was being called. For unruly habit kept saying to me, do you think you can live without them? Paragraph 27. But now it said this very faintly. For in the direction I had set my face and yet toward which I still trembled to go, the chaste dignity of continence appeared to me cheerful, but not wanton, modestly alluring me to come and doubt nothing, extending her holy hands full of multitude of good examples to receive and embrace me. There were there so many young men and maidens, a multitude of youth and every age, grave widows and ancient virgins, and continents herself in their midst, not barren, but a fruitful mother of children, her joys by thee, O Lord, her husband. And she smiled on me with a challenging smile, as if to say, Can you not do what these young men and maidens can? Or can any of them do it of themselves? And not rather in the Lord their God? The Lord their God gave me to them. Why do you stand in your own strength and so stand not? Cast yourself on him, fear not. He will not flinch and you will not fall. Cast yourself on him without fear, for he will receive and heal you. And I blushed violently, for I still heard the muttering of those trifles and hung suspended. And again, she seemed to speak, stop your ears against those unclean members of yours that they may be mortified. They tell you of delights, 
but not according to the law of the Lord thy God. St. Augustine was trapped in the sin of fornication with his mistresses. And if he was to be made a new creation, then he would have to give up his mistresses or the thoughts of his mistresses. Again, he heard the words of this woman. And again, she seemed to speak, stop your ears against those unclean members of yours, that they may be mortified. They tell you of delights, but not according to the law of the Lord thy God. This struggle raging in my heart was nothing but the contest of self against self. If we are being wounded by the word of God, as was St. Augustine, that is a good thing. For the word of God must wound before it can heal in our paradoxical agonization to enter in at the straight gate before we die physically. Let us now commence with Mr. Whitfield's message entitled, The Putting On of the New Man. And George Whitfield begins with a scripture, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now we begin the message. Quote, if we have eyes to see, if we have ears to hear, and if our hearts have indeed and in truth experienced the grace of God, I, George Whitfield, believe we must acknowledge that all divine revelation terminates and centers in these two things, our fall by the first and our rise again by the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Read the lively oracles of God. Read from the third of Genesis to the end of the revelations and you will find that they all point out to us that we are now fallen from God and that Christ was sent into the world on purpose to bring us back to God. This was taught under the Old Testament dispensation, but is brought in a more particular manner to light by the gospel. And however some who are enemies to the doctrine of grace insist that the consequences of such doctrine is that we may sin, that grace may abound. Yet if we do the apostle justice who wrote particularly upon the doctrines of grace, we shall find them practical and not speculative. And those that are deepest in these doctrines are most pressing to duties. The Apostle Paul was certainly one of the greatest men that ever appeared in the cause of Christ, though once a great persecutor. And it is the opinion of Dr. Goodwin 
that he, the Apostle Paul, sits nearest to Jesus Christ. However that be, he, the Apostle Paul, wrote like a scholar and a Christian. He writes judiciously, taking care to enlighten the understanding as well as to warm the heart. This is very observable in all his writings, but particularly in this epistle to the Ephesians, which is his masterpiece. And as Dr. Goodwin observes, because it smells of the prison, that is former Mr. Morality or the apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians while he was in prison. He was put in prison for preaching the gospel. And the great God ordered it so that Paul should be able to write this epistle as a reward to the Ephesians, a reward not of debt, but of grace, that when they had burnt their magic books, God gave them the best epistle that was ever wrote to instruct them in the great doctrines of the everlasting gospel. In the latter part of this epistle, we find him laboring to enforce all the blessed truths of the everlasting gospel. In my opinion, this chapter is one of the most practical chapters in all the epistles. I have heard of Pythagoras' golden verses, but I had rather read Paul's golden verses. This is one of them now before us, and it will prove so if the blessed spirit of God is pleased to set it home upon our hearts. In the preceding verses, the apostle had been speaking of putting off the old man, that would be the natural man, which subject, though not directly upon that text, I discoursed upon on New Year's Day. And as it is but a little while past, I would now preach a word, and God grant it may be a word in season, on the doctrine of the new creature is the new creation. We are frequently wishing one another a happy new year. But what signifies a new year without a new nature? Let us see what the apostle exhorts us to. For it is written to us and to our children and to as many as the Lord our God shall call. He exhorts to put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, without detaining you any longer in the preface. First, I, George Whitfield, propose to show you what we are here to understand by the new man. Secondly, show that we are to put it on, which I shall endeavor to enforce by several motives. Thirdly, I will then address myself to you who have in some measure put him on and to you who have never 
put him on at all. First, let us explain what the apostle would have us to understand by the new man, and that ye put on the new man. It is, my dear hearers, a figurative expression, a metaphor. But under this metaphor, this figure, there is something real, something of vast importance intended. I know very well when we talk of the new birth, regeneration, and insist upon the Christians being made partakers of a divine nature, we must either be counted enthusiasts or madmen, or we are given to understand that the scholar deems these and such like expressions as figurative, and that there is nothing real meant by these expressions, but they are only symbolic. But those that content themselves with a figurative regeneration will, by and by, run into a real damnation. The scriptures everywhere declare there is a new birth, and it is here called a new man. Because whoever is the subject of this new birth, there is a thorough and a total alteration made in the whole man. And when the apostle bids us put off the old man, that is the natural man, he means all belonging to the old man or natural man. And so putting on the new man means that the revelation must be as diffusive as the corruption was. That as we were once totally defiled, so we must now be totally renewed or we can never enter into the kingdom of God. It may be termed new, I suppose, on many accounts, new in opposition to the old man or the natural man mentioned before. Put off the old man or natural man and put on the new man, the new creation. For my brethren, here is our case. We have not only a new house to build up, but we have an old house to pull down. This is called the new man in opposition to the old man. I think I cannot represent it better than by the account given in the scripture of Esau and Jacob's struggling in the womb of Rebekah. Rebekah wanted children, and when God gave her children, she felt them struggling in her womb, and she cries, Why am I thus? Even in this, there is something very significant. God told her there were two nations struggling in her womb. So when a soul begins to be awakened, there are two principles struggling in the womb of that person's heart. Esau represents the old man 
or the natural man, and Jacob, the new man, or the new creation. And as Jacob, the younger brother, got the better of Esau, so grace shall get the better of the old Adam by and by. But it may be called a new man because it is brought into the soul by a new principle. I am afraid a great many people say it is brought into the soul by baptism and that they were Christians when infants of a span long and they would flatter themselves their names are written in heaven from the time their names were written in the parish books. But I would as soon believe the doctrine of transubstantiation as that of baptismal regeneration, or that because a person is baptized with water, he is therefore baptized with the Holy Ghost. If you were regenerated by baptism, you have certainly lost it. And why then should we quarrel about words? It proceeds from a new spirit infused into the soul by the Spirit of God. And therefore may be called a new man. Perhaps the grand reason why it may be called the new man is because it makes a change in the whole man. I don't mean that it makes a physical change in the soul, for we have certainly the same soul as before, but it works an universal and moral change in the soul of man by which he becomes a new creation. Old things, the old man, the natural man, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Whoever are made partakers of this new nature, every faculty of the soul, every member of the body, those members which before were instruments of sin, are now become instruments of holiness. For instance, if we are real Christians, we have a new understanding. You were once darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Light was the first thing in the old creation. Let there be light, and there was light. God spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So when God has a mind to regenerate your souls, he says, let there be light. And there is light. When the soul is awakened, he begins to see his darkness and danger. His relations begin to say, the man is crazy. When the prodigal son began to see himself lost, then his understanding began to be renewed. There must also be a new will. I don't know what people mean by talking of a free will and the power to return to God, but this I say, that if God's free grace does not save me, 
my own free will will certainly damn me. I will allow we have a free will. A man has a power to put himself under the means of grace. He has a power to abstain from many sins. A man has as much power to come to the tabernacle, to go to church and meeting, as to go to a feast. A man has power to come to the pool of Bethesda. But he must wait for Christ to put him in. He has now a new will. Before, it was opposite to the will of God. But now, as to the main purport of it, it coincides with the will of God. So man hath new affections as well as a new will. The affections are now spiritualized and set upon proper objects. By nature, we are contrary to God. That is, the natural man is contrary to God. When we become new creatures or new creations, I don't mean mere reformed men, in other words, tweaking the natural man, or that we may be, and not new men or not new creations. We have new affections. They are set on things above and not on things below. And as a needle once touched by the lodestone always turns to a particular point, so the heart once touched with the Spirit of God effectually turns to God. I mean habitually and as to the tenor of the Christian's life. You may, by your finger, force the needle this and that way, but take off your finger from it, and it will immediately turn towards its center. So by the violence of this and the other temptation, a soul may vary and wander from God, but let him return to his right mind, and he will immediately fly to God, the proper center and happiness of the soul. When a person becomes a new creature, he has got a new set of joys, a new set of sorrows. He has also a new memory. Before his conversion, his memory was filled with plays, romances, etc. But now he has got the library of Jesus in his heart as it was with Gregory. And as he has a new memory, so he has a new reason. What the deists call reason is only reason debauched. When a man is enlightened, he has got reason indeed being brought to himself. And however the world may look upon Christians as unreasonable men and acting like madmen, yet if true Christians were weighed in an even balance, they would find Christianity to be right reason. Again, 
A man truly enlightened has got a kind of new conscience by being enlightened by the Spirit of God. In short, all the members of the body, as well as the faculties of the soul, are renewed and sanctified. His legs that before carried him to the tavern now carry him to the house of God and to his closet that is in prayer. The hands that before held forth the bait now are lifted up in prayer to God. The eyes before full of adultery are now like dove's eyes. The body before like a cage of unclean birds is now become the temple of the living God. Now God dwells there. Now God lives there and erects a little, but a heavenly kingdom in his body so that the old things are done away. And behold, all things are become new. I won't say that this new birth is alike in all, or that all arrive at the greatest degree of it suddenly and instantaneously. But this I say, that every new creature is perfectly so, as a child just born is a perfect man. But the child must afterwards grow to manhood. So in the new creation, we rise higher and higher till we come to a perfect man in Christ Jesus. The new man is created after God in righteousness and holiness. Observe, it is created and this cuts down all those that say it is got by a moral suasion or the power of argument. I might as well change the world as change my own heart. As Adam, when he came from God, had the image of God and was full of God. And as he was created in righteousness, so are we to be created in righteousness and true holiness. If any should ask me how it is to be wrought, I answer, by the Spirit of God. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Every power and faculty of the man must be renewed. Secondly, we are exhorted to put on this new man. And was Paul a free willer? Think ye when he said, put ye on the new man? No, he once indeed was a free willer when he was a persecutor. He thought he could be saved by his own righteousness. But a blow that he received going to Damascus flung down his free will. And from that time, he 
preached up free grace. The man that was born blind at the call of Christ came seen. We must exert all the power we have. We must stretch out the withered hand. And how know we but it may be made whole. God deals with us as rational creatures. And if we would be new creatures, we must avoid everything that is contrary to it and follow the things that lead to it. Some may ask, what is the new man? And if you can describe it, pray, what is it? If it was a matter of indifference, I'll assure you I never would disturb you or take one step to exhort you to it. But let me tell you, no matter whether you are Presbyterian or independent churchman or dissenter, Methodist or no Methodist, unless you are new creatures, you are in a state of damnation. There are a great many good men that fall out in their way to heaven about circumstantials. But here is a point in which all good men center. If we can prove that we are born again, no matter what the world may nickname us. Without this, you had better have been born in Turkey, nay, rather that you had never been born. I suppose all of you may hope to go to heaven when you die. But my brethren, what do you make of heaven? Some perhaps may imagine they shall walk in golden streets and covetous people would fain think so or it is no heaven for them because gold is their God. But let me tell you, heaven, what we call heaven, is rather a state than a place. And if you ever hope to go to heaven when you die, you must have a heaven in your hearts. I have seen persons go to sea. They have changed their places. I'll assure you, but not their tempers. If any of you were to drop down dead whilst you are hearing of me now, what would become of you? Why, if you were in a state of unregeneracy with those cursed ill tempers that you now have, they would gnaw upon you to all eternity. Would heaven be to you who have no new natures? Suppose any of you deaf and you were to be invited to a fine concert or any of you blind and I was to describe the colors of the rainbow, what would it avail? So heaven would be no heaven to you unless you had tempers suitable to it. What do you think of a person that cannot bear prayer or singing psalms? Is such a one fit for heaven? No. 
We must learn the new song in this world or we shall never sing it in the world to come. Take this for granted. Either you must be changed or God must change. And as God cannot change, you must change or be banished from his presence forever or Christ died in vain. What signifies a man being merely orthodox in his notions? I like orthodoxy very well. But what signifies an orthodox head with a heterodox heart? And unless you put on the new man, Christ died in vain as to you. The redemption must be brought home and applied to the soul. Here now, twelfth day is come, and you are ready to say what a merry Christmas you have kept, what you have lost, and what you have won. Perhaps some will brag that they have kept Christmas 30, 40, or 50 years. But what signifies keeping Christmas except you keep it in your hearts? Was ever Christ formed in your hearts? This is the grand criterion of a Christian. And as it is Saturday night for the meditating and casting up of your accounts, I pray God you and I may cast up the accounts of our hearts. Will you give me leave to deal a little faithfully, though lovingly with you tonight? Have you yet put on this new man? Do you ever feel the Spirit of God in his powerful operations changing your natures? Has he given you a new heart? Do you discern that you have got new ways, that you act from new principles, that you aim at new ends, that you act to please God? Do you see that you have got new relations? For whosoever loves Christ, the same is your brother, your sister, and mother. Have you been taught to know no man after the flesh? Has the new nature been productive of a new life? Have you altered your ways, your course of life? Are you quite metamorphosed from what you once was? I humbly trust this is the case with some of you. Is this saving change wrought in you? Has the great God converted you? And can you say, blessed be God, though I be a weak one, yet I trust I can say I am a new creature. If so, I wish thee joy, my brother. I wish thee joy, my sister. I wish you joy of the new year. If so, welcome, my dear brother. Welcome, my dear sister into this new relation. Perhaps some of you have but a little bread in your stores. You are in poverty and great distress. Come, be thankful and say, God has denied me outward things. Yet blessed 
be his name. He hath given me the true riches. However you may be upon a dunghill now, you are king's sons and daughters and shall sit upon thrones forever. You are happy and the only happy people in the world. There is no happiness till we are new creatures. The world is a great delusion. And if you will believe a great man of France, human grandeur is a grand delusion. We should, like Noah's dove, find no rest for the sole of our foot till the great Noah reaches out his hand, as I pray God he may, and take us into the ark. A soul cannot rest till it comes to its center, God, no more than the needle till it gets to its beloved pole. Return to thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. Thirdly, I would now address myself to you who have in some measure put on this new man. Have any of you put on this new man? Oh, thank the great God for such blessing and adore his free, unmerited, distinguishing, and sovereign grace. Why might not you have been numbered with the poor criminals in Newgate last Monday? Why are not you cursing and swearing with your unconverted relations? Why not a dry formalist or an hypocritical professor? Why hath God brought thee out of darkness into his marvelous light? Oh, join with me in blessing God for his spirit and grace, for his providence in bringing you under the word. Curiosity only perhaps brought you here. And God hath overruled that curiosity for good. Others, perhaps, were wrought upon in their mad career, running headlong to hell and destruction. Some in their youthful days, some in middle age, and some in old age and gray hairs. As an old man of Birmingham once told me on asking his age, Blessed be God, said he. I am about six years old, though 70 years of age. We are no older on God's account than as we can date our new birth. The Lord grant that all that hear me this day may put on the new man. You that have put it on, put it on afresh. Walk worthy of God and the holy profession that you have taken upon you and be fruitful in every good word and work. Oh, that we had more of Christ, more holiness, more of his humility, more of his zeal, more of his love, more of his self-denial, more of his blessed temper exemplified in his life. Oh, 
for this life of Christ, this life of faith, oh, that our words and actions might more plainly declare that we belong to Christ. Has the Lord helped us to put on Christ? Oh, then let us triumph over his death. I remember a good old Christian in America once begged me to go into her garden where a good many people were buried. Here, says she, brother and sister, such as one lies, and here, by and by, shall I be down. With great composure, she spoke it. Hast thou put on God? Hast thou put on the new nature? Death then will not strike thee with terrors. Surely you'll say, I cry no more, or be concerned that I must die. When Jesus rose and left the grave, it was that thou and I might take it up, wipe our eyes and cry no more. Here the new creature is but an embryo. The walls are to be taken down, to be rebuilt for glory and immortality. Welcome then death and wait with patience for that new heaven wherewith dwelleth righteousness. Don't let us fear. However dark the passage, however gloomy the valley, when we come to it, we shall find God will enlighten and cheer our souls and give us a safe passage, though it may be attended with some difficulty. I believe some of you don't fear death, but are afraid of dying. You don't fear getting to Canaan, but then you must swim through the Jordan. But has our high priest set his feet in it? And will not you follow him? Do you think Christ will only stand on the other side and say, come hither? No, he'll go and fetch you over. As for God, his ways are perfect and he will perfect the work of his own hands. He will do all his pleasure. However, Satan may say, thou shalt be ruined. Yet who art thou? I, Zerubbabel, shall overcome them all. Look up to Christ. Think of his loving heart. Hear what he has to say. He will take the lamb in his bosom and gently lead them that are with young. Exercise faith on the Son of God. Hast thou been enabled to put on the new man? Won't you then put up a prayer for your dear children? for your carnal relations, for your unconverted servants. Some of you, perhaps, may be laughed at by them. But when they laugh, do you pray? Let all the children in the womb or on the breast adopt the prayer of holy Miss Monroe. Lord, let me never bear a child for hell. What signifies leaving them estates? They are good in their place, but without a new nature will only sink them deeper into hell. Pray then mightily 
Were there to be an earthquake tonight and this tabernacle swallowed up? Good God, what an awful separation would there be? And now, what shall I say to you who have never put on this new man? I would hope that most of you by this time have had your curiosity satisfied and that now come out of a good intention. And let me tell you that there is scarce one in hell but what intended to be good one time or other. I may have a fever upon me and may desire to be cured, but my desire is not the cure itself. I tell thee, O man, I tell thee, O woman, whoever thou art, thou art as a dead man. Thou art as a dead woman. Nay, a damned man, a damned woman without a new heart. Some people cannot pray without a book. And it is because they have no feeling in their hearts. If thou art poor, thou canst ask an alms without a book. Little children lisp and speak half words, and you are pleased with their imperfect and broken expressions. So is God well pleased with the stammering prayers of a soul crying out, Lord, help me to put on the new man. You perhaps may say, I have been to church, said my prayers, received the sacrament, but I don't know what this man has said tonight. I thought I had done my duty and had got a good heart. But according to this, I find I have still my religion to seek. Will my God take away this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh? Remember, it is purchased. Jesus has bought it by his blood and God will give it to them that ask it. And I pray God send you away restless tonight till you have obtained it. Don't despair, though you are an old man, a gray-headed sinner. Blessed be God. It is possible for thee to be born again, though thou art old. I tell thee, if thou wilt come to God, thou shalt have a new nature. My brethren, Thank God that he hath brought you to a new year and that you are out of hell. For Christ's sake, don't rest short of a new nature. But remember, you must not only be reformed, but renewed. You cannot go to heaven without a new heart. Though you cannot of yourself change your heart, yet blessed be God, he has promised it. Put him, therefore, in mind of his promise and beg that this promise may be fulfilled by many notes put up. I have reason to think there is a stirring amongst the dry bones. The Lord keep you awakened for God's sake. Don't hearken to your wicked carnal relations. They will tell you that you are righteous over much. But remember that you are so till you close with the righteousness of Christ. Don't be so complacent as to stay for them. 
for perhaps you may stay till death and hell overtake you. Let the world laugh and scoff at you. Heed goodly company. Oh, that every one of you this night may be awakened and that every one of you may have these words continually ringing in your ears. Put on the new man. Pray earnestly for it. Come to Christ. Make him a present of your hearts. He will renew them. And if it is the will of God, that this may be the character of every one of you that hear me now, and that you may dwell in his new heaven and new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. May God of his infinite mercy grant through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be glory and praise forever and ever. Amen and amen. Another great message by George Whitfield. And one very important point to make clear is that George Whitfield never forgot how important that it is to continually preach the hub of the wheel. As we have mentioned many times, we can think of the Bible as a wagon wheel puzzle with the hub of the wheel being salvation and the 66 spokes of the wheel being the 66 books of the Bible. If salvation being the hub of the wheel is false, then the entire 66 books of the Bible will be tainted with a false interpretation and thus messages upon salvation must be preached continually for Satan is continually counterfeiting the hub of the wheel. And then in conjunction with salvation messages, we can begin to speak about the principles of the 66 books of the Bible and how these principles affect us as individuals in our American society, how these principles affect our family, the husband to wife relation, the parent to child relation, and the importance of the family as a building block of America, second only to the dominant church of America, and the importance of the individual to America. America is not into groupthink. America is into e pluribus unum, out of the many, one, out of the many unique individuals. We as Americans are all unique, and we are to nurture our uniqueness lest we leave a hole in our family and a hole in our country that no one else can fill. George Whitfield never forgot that the preaching of salvation is preeminent over all these other principles. And thus, some people call George Whitfield the spiritual father of America. For George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and the other founding fathers were in their youth when George Whitfield preached over 18,000 sermons from Maine to Georgia. His sermons are worth listening to many times over. May the Lord bless thee.
and keep thee in the name of Jesus. Amen.